You know, today is uh, the last of what's been a power-packed, eventful year and a half. And it marks the last weekend that Laura and I are with this wonderful community at Menlo. You've given us great examples of what faith looks like in hard times, about serving others in ways that make people wonder why. And in a time of COVID, you've drawn close people who feel isolated. You know, I thought it would be helpful to have some closing thoughts. I spent this weekend in Chicago at a uh, conference where I met my mentor, the guy who taught me about public speaking, uh, and he is now 92 years old. And as I left him, I thought that he taught me almost 40 years ago that last words are lasting words. That is, there are some things that we can only learn as lessons in hard times. Last words are meant to last. These would be last words. So I thought of what I'd say to the Menlo community, and I'd begin by, by reminding us that in a world that is built on reputations and sound bites and the number of hits we get on social media, that our idea of success is not necessarily God's at all. As a matter of fact, these ugly, hard, defeated times may be the ones that God uses most. One of the first friends that we met at at Menlo is a woman who is trying to raise her children as a single mom and has been diagnosed with stage four cancer. And she has been a member of this church for decades, but felt like when she came, she was one of the ones who was losing in a train that was always going up and to the right. And, And then when COVID came, when hard times came, she said, I felt more welcome. I felt like it was welcome to my world, the place where we all need to be healed by God. Thank you for that, Menlo. The the second thing that Menlo has to offer, it seems to me, is that you continue to be a community centered on the grace of Jesus. Nothing more and nothing less. And frankly, reminding us that nothing more is needed. And in a success-addicted, performance-driven, image-based culture, grace is God's gift to the broken. That's all of us, whether it's on the inside or outward. And that leads to the end result. And my realization at Menlo that we can never discover in good times what God wants to share with us in hard times. Menlo has been learning to find joy even in suffering, because we've rediscovered that suffering produces endurance. And endurance, it says, produces character. The character of Jesus is found in hard times, not in shiny good ones. And then the character of Jesus provides hope. And the word says that our hope does not disappoint us because God's love is being poured into our hearts by the spirit given to us. Menlo, would you join me in prayer? Lord, I thank you for this season of life for Laura and me and for all the folks who have wandered through these doors or joined us online and have felt a sense of something. We're not always sure what, but something that that comes from the outside, that comes from you, that 
that draws us together and, uh, and feeds our hungers and quenches our thirst and restores our hope. I pray that your word would speak to us even this morning, even this weekend, in your name, amen. You know, if you ever needed a reminder that um, these groups of Jesus followers look at the world upside down, you ought to listen to the way the Apostle Paul talks to the church at Corinth, because he could just as easily be talking to the 21st century peninsula as to this tiny gathering of Jesus followers in a port city in Greece. Paul says this, brothers and sisters, Consider how you were called. Remember who you were. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. And then he says, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chooses the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chooses the lowly and despised things of the world, the invisible things, to counter all the visible. The word of the Lord. Almost everybody has had a bad year in junior high or senior high. It just seems like a law of nature. For me, it came halfway between my junior year in high school and my senior year. It was, it was rough. Our family went from being upper middle class to basically 10 years of underemployment and unemployment as my dad lost his job when he was 59. I didn't realize that we had actually lost our house. I just knew we had to move and we had to stop buying fancy clothes at neat stores. I, I started being angry that I couldn't do what other kids could do, what we used to do. And my nominal Catholic childhood upbringing faith just sort of disappeared. Because I, now I was trying hard in high school to fit in with the cool kids, with the, with the smart kids. And when I said something in our history class about all the terrible things that the church had done, it was a sign of my own journey of intellectual disaffection. I remember Kathy was one of those bright, young, intellectual atheists that I was trying to imitate. She was on the inside. And she came up afterwards and said, you ought to talk to that Campus Life guy. And then over the next year or so, I watched as her doubts echoed mine, and she took longer to come over the line of faith, and she was deeper as a result. And over the, sec over the next several months, I came to believe that there, that there actually was a God, that that God knew me, and somehow God loved me, that I didn't have to perform but I needed to acknowledge and get on that God's side. And so that's how I came to faith, as God, in his great mercy, took me in with all my pride and reservations and doubts, like I was doing God a favor. But how is this new faith, my faith, going to work its way out in this hard high school, college environment? Because nothing else had changed. I was in the same family. I was in the same classes. I was still broke. In many ways, I was a reluctant convert. At first, because I knew that it'd mean giving up the prestige factor of being one of those 
agnostic doubters, too cool to be pinned into one way of looking at life, one truth for everybody, one faith that seems so narrow-minded. And it'd also mean that I'd have to start identifying with those Christian kids. Uh, Before, I I saw their fervor, and while it was always well-intended, it put me off because I felt outside the club. And I knew that I'd have to be willing to admit that that was me now, or I'd be a hypocrite, kidding myself. I didn't want to be that kind of person of noisy faith, a goody-two-shoes, obnoxious like them. And then somebody showed me in the Bible where it says, always be ready to give an answer for the hope that's within you, but do it with gentleness and respect. That's from 1 Peter. And I thought, I could do that. But where could I find role models to show me how to do it? And as I read the the scriptures, I, I came to some unusual spots in that long story of the way God touches his children. And that's where I found stories that I identified in the Old Testament, like this one from the time of the kings, when Israel wants to be like all the other nations and they create their own kings and they still have the prophets around. Chapter five starts like this. Naaman was the commander of the army of the king of Aram. The Aramites are sort of like the Israelites. They're they're cousins, but they fight all the time. Naaman was the commander of the army. He was a great man in the sight of his master. He was highly regarded because through him, the Lord had given victory to Aram. God was on the side of these people who sometimes fought against the Israelites. Naaman was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. Now there were bands of raiders from Aram and they'd gone out and taken captive a young girl from Israel and she served as a servant or a slave to Naaman's wife. And this servant girl said to her mistress, oh, if only my master would go and see the prophet who lives in Samaria, he'd cure him, he'd cure him of his leprosy. And then comes this fascinating story in uh, chapter five that involves the king of Israel who sees Naaman and his army coming toward him and he's terrified that he can't fight off this enemy, and he starts yelling at the prophet Elijah, what has your God done? We're all going to die. We're all going to die. And then the prophet Elijah, he's too unimpressed even to come outside and see the conquering general Naaman. And he sends instructions to him through a slave. If you really want to be cured, you have to do this. And that makes Naaman so angry that he stomps off and his servants have to challenge him to humble himself by washing off in a dirty little creek called the Jordan River instead of the mighty rivers of his home country. And then we get to verse 14. It says, So Naaman went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times, just as the man of God had told him. And his flesh was restored and became clean like a little boy. And then Naaman and all of his attendants went back to the man of God. He he stood before Elisha. So apparently at this point in the story, the prophet does come outside. And Naaman said to Elisha, now I know 
that there is no God in all the world except the one in Israel. Please accept my gift. And the story goes on, but let's, let's stop there. Because uh, the president of Princeton Seminary calls Naaman's story a turning point because he says, we all have a little Naaman inside of us. And probably we all have a little of that anxious king of Israel if we're religious people. And so as I thought about Menlo Church and reluctant believers like Naaman and like me and maybe like some of you, I had, I had three thoughts. The first is that I believe Menlo's future will be more about how it cultivates hearts like Naaman's that are washed and able to reach out. It'll be more about that than the number of sites that we have or the power of our preachers or the size of our budgets or the number of times we have social media hits. Because I believe that it is the mostly hidden places where God works. It's the mostly hidden people that God uses. In a world that beats its chest, God sees effectiveness differently. Will Menlo and you and I, will we learn to listen to the quieter voices or just be around the people in the headlines? The second thing that Naaman uh, taught me is that faith is almost always better conveyed with acts of service than just proclamation alone. The advice from the servant girl says he needs to go and do this, and then the prophet says he needs to go and do that. Today, we might be displaying our faith by the ability to forgive the unforgivable, to learn even from our opponents. God can speak to us when we serve even our enemies, to reach out to the strangers among us at work, and at Starbucks, and at school, and right around us. I believe that faith acts often before it's heard. Faith acts. And because people's lives are almost always focused on something other than religion, we need to be redirected in how we act by what they see but they cannot understand. In other words, we need to be the people who act in ways that almost require an explanation. Because just like in this Old Testament story, most of the folks at Menlo are inoculated with Christianity. They think they know Christianity, but what they have heard all their lives is, believe this, act like this, go to this, straighten up, put this answer down on the test. And who wants to do that? They have not been exposed to unshakable love, or come on, let's reason together, or I think you could be forgiven even of that. And that leads to the third thing that, that Naaman teaches me, that, that reminder that God is bigger than we know. God is beyond, God is working beyond what I can see, what you can see. And you and I are given the privilege of pointing others in a Godward direction. Sometimes by what we say, like the little slave girl, but 
other times just by living a life that makes people ask questions. You know, I've had the privilege of knowing a lot of Naaman's, uh, a lot of people who share Naaman's heart. They are strong and capable people. They are good-hearted. They're often the best people at the party. They're not Jesus followers, but they have a belief that there's a God. They're trying to be a good enough person, a good person or at least a good enough person. I, I think of my uh, friend, Matt. I hope to see him in a, in a month or so. I met Matt when we were playing basketball at the gym and... and uh, and when he found out that I was a pastor after I had gotten into a shoving match with another basketball player, his laughter was filled with expletives. And that's how we got to know each other. And when we started talking at lunch after ball, I invited him not to church. I invited him to dinner and, and we became friends. And over the years that followed, he kept coming up with different reasons that he couldn't be, I, can't, I, I believe in God, but I can't be that Jesus guy, you know, about lifestyle. He didn't want to give up his lifestyle. He, he, he didn't want to have to say, I believe this, if it ever made somebody else feel that, that they were wrong. But our friendship caused us to know families, and his daughter started coming to the youth group, and one day she said that she wanted to be baptized. Would Dad like to be baptized too? And when they had that conversation, I, I knew it was going to happen. So I can remember in the locker room, <laughs> I went up to him, and I preemptively said, hey, dude, I'm thrilled about your daughter. And, and, and I, I know you're thinking that you want to get baptized too because it's a family thing. But if you want to get baptized, it's got to be because you've decided to follow Jesus and to submit to his way for your life, not just come to church. And he laughed, but he got the message. It wasn't until months later that he came back to me and said, I, I, I'm ready. I, I do want to publicly be baptized. I want to announce my faith and and one of the sweetest baptisms I ever did was for him and one of his little girls. Matt's had all the ups and downs of life. He's a Naaman. He's successful in business more than he is in his marriage, but his trust in Jesus is real and growing. He brings life and joy to relationships, whether they are at work or in private. He's learned to forgive and ask for forgiveness. That's a reminder to me that God is way bigger than I know. God works way better than in any way I can see, and it's all in God's timing. You and I are living in an increasingly secular culture. It, it, it can be hard to admit that you go to church, that you can't come to the card game because you go to a Bible study, that, that you can't go and do this because you have faith in Jesus. And in that kind of culture, how are you going to continue to find your true north? I believe that you will find it if Menlo Church remains a hospital for sinners and a place where minds come awake and are unafraid to discover that all truth is God's truth. And when we say, I don't know, it's a powerful combination because it comes with hearts that serve other people whether we know or not. 
Naaman's a story about generals and kings and prophets. But remember, it's nothing without a slave girl and the servants. It all starts because of one young girl's faith. And in this culture, in this time, she would have been unseen and unheard. But God heard. God sees us all. You know, what's interesting to me is that I read the story. I had no indication, whatever this little girl's name was, that she was ever set free. But she changed the kingdom of heaven. So who are you in this story? Has God put you in the position of that slave girl seeing somebody in real need and and you want to speak into that life toward the love of a God that can heal, but you're afraid of how it might make you look? Or are you the king? You're a religious person, but you're afraid to trust that God will do what only God can do in your life or somebody else's. Or are you like Naaman today? You're a good person. You're filled with good intentions, but you seem unable to get clean. You know that if people saw the real you, they might cringe like they were passing a leper. Just remember, we all have a little Naaman inside us. We're not asked to dip seven times in the Jordan River, but we are invited together to dive into the waters of the baptism of Jesus. And when we rise, let's act like we've been washed. Not like we're good, but we've been washed clean. So the first words of our mouth might always be, oh, thank God. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. It's been a privilege to pray with you, Menlo. Can we do it one more time? Lord Jesus, I thank you so much for this group of sisters and brothers scattered around the bay and around the world. Some of us feel today like like we're that little servant girl and and we want to point toward faith, but we're afraid of what people will say. Some of us know a Naaman, really good person who really needs the touch of God. Some of us feel like Naaman is us in the mirror. I ask, God, that you would do what only you can do. That in Jesus Christ, we would stand before you and be known and be loved and be washed so that as your beloved children, we could love others in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. Amen.